This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, this is AC. The Doc Project will not be coming back in the fall. So this summer, we're bringing you some of our favorite episodes since the show began back in 2015. This episode originally aired in September of 2019. Okay, so when did you realize that there was something different about oh. Tom? So um, Tom and I met, uh, so how Tom and I met, we were working on a project together and I was producing a promo video for this project. And on our last day of filming, he had to memorize some lines and deliver them looking straight into the camera. And I've worked with all kinds of actors before, performers. And when I say Tom was struggling to memorize his lines, he was struggling. It was really painful to watch. He would just try. He'd get a first couple words right, and then he would slip away and just fall apart. Give him the piece of paper. He's mm-hmm. got it. You take the paper away. Gone. Hey. I'm AC Rowe, this is The Doc Project, and this is Paul. Hi, my name is Paul Aflalo. The guy we're talking about, Tom Ebayer, you'll meet him in a minute. Okay, so back to that day. Tom is trying his darndest to memorize these lines, but he just can't do it. The day is dragging on, everybody is getting a little tired, a little frustrated, especially Tom. So Paul calls it. They're going to take a break, regroup. So while we were taking this break, he was talking to his friend Chaz, who was helping us out. And they were talking about this interview he did on the radio. And I was eavesdropping on the conversation, jumped in. And I was like, oh, is it about this project, the one that we're producing the video for? And he goes, no, not, not at all. It was actually, it's about my condition, I guess. His condition. His condition. And that's when he asked me this. So think of a horse. Okay. You get some sort of visual representation of a horse come to your mind. Yes. I don't have that. Not for thoughts, not for memories, not for anything. I don't have that visual system. Wait, what does this mean? So when we close our eyes, like we just do it now, if you're to close your eyes right now, you are literally just seeing darkness, right? Or the reflections of light coming through your eyelids. Yeah, it's just kind of blurry, red, purple... Yeah. But then if you start thinking of something, you can conjure that image to your mind. You see it in your mind, right? Yeah. When he says, picture a horse, Mm -hmm. I can close my eyes and I picture a horse right now. It's chestnut and glossy and cantering. Tom can't do that? No. Tom can't visualize anything in his mind. So picture a horse, he sees darkness. He sees nothing. How did Tom even discover this? So it was back in 2010. Tom was with his then girlfriend. And we had come home from a party and she says to me, Joanne is wearing the same thing that she was wearing the last time we saw her. And I was just blown away. I was like, how on earth do you remember what she was wearing? Like that is just so crazy to me. She says, oh, you know, I see a picture of her clearly in my mind. And that just, like, I just did not understand. Whoa. And out of all the people he talked to, nobody else had this. What do you mean? Like, everyone else can visualize things and I can't do that. I felt very, like, isolated, different. (laughs) 
the, the overwhelming feeling that I remember was confused. Um, and I remember doing a whole lot of searching online and talking to different people to try and figure out what was visualization even, because, I mean, I had never even really considered what that might even be. The emotional part was the feeling of differentness, of not being able to do something that everyone else could do. And it felt unfair, you know, and, and as I would talk to people about it, they'd tell me how, oh yeah, I couldn't like visualize my memories and they were like reliving them. And like, that seems like such a human thing to be able to do, to relive your memories, to create images and visualizations about your future and what this life might actually look like. You know, and, and at that point in my life, it started to filter in everywhere. In my learning, you know, I was at un in university at the time, and I'd be studying for an exam, and I'd be like, oh, if only I could visualize these things, I would do way better on my exams. It was almost all-consuming. It was like it was like everything I would do would be in relationship to how, if I were visualizing, how would this be different? But visualization was just the beginning. Talking to his friends, Tom discovered it wasn't just that he couldn't see things in his mind. It was the other senses, too. If you go to a restaurant and you see something on the menu that you enjoy, you can smell and taste it. I can't do that. Or if you think of a song that you like, you can hear the sounds of the instrument in your mind. I could maybe hum to the rhythm of the music, but I don't actually hear the sound. So you can't in any way remember a scent? No. You can't remember what someone would sound like? No, but here's the thing is when I see you or hear your voice, I know that you're Paul. But if I'm at home and someone were to say, what does you know Paul look like? Or you know, describe the sound of Paul's voice, I would have no idea where to start. Okay, just hold up. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to back up a minute. Okay, so, okay. Okay, in my mind's eye, uh -huh. let's right back to the top. I can picture a horse. I'm closing my eyes. I mm -hmm. see the golden flanks. I see the flowing tail. Let's take it outside of, you know, visual memory. Yeah. If I taste, if I think of a lemon, mm -hmm. I can taste a lemon. And you, Okay, so like, yeah, my cheeks just puckered. <laughs> Yours did too. It's a physical response to a recalled taste. Okay, so what's one of your favorite songs? Rhiannon. Fleetwood Mac. And yeah, you know, I can hear Stevie Nicks. She's there in my mind. Tom can't do any of this? No. That's so lonely. At the time, back in 2010, when Tom first realized he was different, there wasn't a word for the way that he was, or is really, or any concrete way to describe people like Tom. So what do you do when you realize something about yourself that leaves you this alone? Well, you look for people who might know something. Tom reached out to a professor at MIT, who then referred him to a professor at Stanford. That professor had heard about similar conditions, but it hadn't really been studied yet. He told Tom to avoid going into fields such as architecture or design, 
but that was all he could really offer. It wasn't until a couple of years later that Tom had his first breakthrough. I was telling the story to a colleague of mine at the time who has an interest in you know, neuroscience and was just fascinated by the conversation and found uh, a paper written by a professor in the UK about a man who had the ability to visualize and imagine but had a stroke in his later life and lost that ability. The person who wrote that paper is Professor Adam Zeman. One of my colleagues handed me a letter and he said, Adam, I think this is your kind of thing. This is Adam. And the letter was a referral from a general practitioner saying this 65-year-old um, retired surveyor has consulted me because following a cardiac procedure, he has lost the ability to imagine. Can you please see him and advise? I've never encountered anything like this before. And I'd never encountered anything like it before. Adam is a professor of cognitive and behavioral neurology at the University of Exeter in the UK. So this mystery case is exactly what Adam does. He starts looking into it. It turned out that there were 50 to 100 cases in the literature since the late 19th century describing people who had lost the ability to visualize as a result of some kind of brain damage. Adam agrees to see this patient. They bring him in and they give him a pseudonym, MX. When I met MX, as we called him in our description of him, um, he turned out to be a very delightful, um, extremely articulate, very bright man in his mid-60s who had previously had a very vivid visual imagination. And following this coronary procedure, he just found that he no longer could call images to the mind's eye. His dreams became avisual. He previously had vivid visual dreams, but that ceased to be the case. And he also found that when he read a novel, whereas previously he had entered a, a visual world as he read, that was no longer the case. So he had the ability to visualize and then just poof. Gone. And this is not like Tom. MX had a visual imagination and then lost it. Tom has never had it. Professor Adam Zeman was fascinated by this guy, MX. So he took the case and started running a series of tests. This allowed them to see what parts of the brain were being activated in response to different cues. And we found that when he looked at famous faces, he had completely normal brain activation. But when he tried to visualize famous faces, he couldn't activate those areas in the way in which you or I would. After finishing these tests on MX, Professor Zeman and his team wrote a paper in which they described MX's case as blind imagination. This paper was picked up by an American science journalist, Carl Zimmer, who wrote an article about it in 2010 for the science magazine Discover. And then over the next couple of years, we had repeated spontaneous contacts from people who said that they recognized themselves in the description of MX, but they'd always been this way. 21 people who had always been this way wrote to Adam Zeman. Tom was one of those people. So I reached out to the professor conducting the research, and he gave me a questionnaire. Like, on a scale of 0 to 10, how well can you visualize a beach? Or a bunch of different things. And basically, I was 0 all the way down. Professor Adam Zeman sent out these questionnaires to all 21 people. And after compiling all the data, they published another article this time naming the way that Tom and the others have been living their entire lives. They called it aphantasia. Aphantasia. 
Fantasia was the word that Aristotle had used to describe the power of imagination. So aphantasia is without. Okay, so these are some breakthroughs. There's a word. There are other people who don't have sensory memory. But there's something else. Something that has barely been researched in all of this. Aphantasia doesn't just affect Tom's senses. It affects his emotions, too. Think of your last messy breakup. I'm sure oh, some <laughs> Exactly, right? <laughs> you can relive that. Oh, yes, I can. And I cannot. Oh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> I can. I know that that happened in my yeah. past, but that does not in any way affect my emotional well-being at this moment okay. because it's just an idea. It has no sensory effect on the present moment. And so... Wow. So I'm then you can't very be, detached from it. So you can't recall the sadness that you felt or the anger? No. I could I'm I can tell you logically I was sad or angry when that happened, yeah. but I don't remember what sad or angry feels like. But you do know what it feels like in the moment. Of course. You had such a reaction to that. Okay, so well, at the uh, at the time I was going through a breakup, and so that really resonated with me. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> but like, you know, you you get over your breakup, right? I mean, the pain hurts less. But for Tom, this isn't just getting over it. No, it's not so much getting over it because he can logically recall the memory, but he can't re-experience it. He can't re-experience anything about how he felt. Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, me too. But here's the tricky thing. When Tom is not in pain... He can't remember what pain feels like. When he is in pain, it's the only thing he can feel. When he's in that state, it's all-consuming. He can't even distract himself. Like if he's at the dentist, he can't think about something else to take him away from the feelings of the pain and anxiety. And this can cause some problems, which all became a little clearer when Tom told me about his mom. It was in 2007, and Tom was 17. His parents were divorced, and he was living with his dad. It was a Saturday morning, maybe around 10 or 10.30 a.m. I was on the computer, home alone, and the doorbell rang. And I walked downstairs, and there was a policeman standing at the door, two policemen. Uh, and I opened the door. They asked if anyone was home. Uh, I said, no, I think I'm alone. And they told me right there, you know, they told me that my mother had passed away. She had a heart aneurysm, uh, which stopped blood flow to the brain, um, which means she went to bed one night and didn't wake up in the morning. For like six to eight months, I felt very deep, intense sadness and anger and and. But it's very hard for me while I'm in the experience. Like, I can't imagine, a, you know, something else. I can't. There's nothing I can do in my mind to bring me to a different place. But once I did get through it and looked back, it didn't really affect me anymore. And so I don't have the ability to, you know, put myself in the shoe in, in that time when I find out or, or to recall what it felt like to be so hurt. I know that that happened, but that has no effect on my present state. You literally live in the present then. Yes. 
So for aphantasics like Tom, when they're in it, they're in it. But once they've lived something, when it's over, it's over. So Tom doesn't have like emotional baggage. Like there's no emotional baggage. And while it's true for the sad and tragic moments in their lives, it's the same for every moment of their lives, including all the happy, loving, beautiful moments we all experience. It struck me, if I couldn't recall that stuff, I would feel like I'm missing out on something. And I asked Tom about that. Certainly when I came to this realization, that was my initial response, was that I'm missing something 99.9% of people I speak to can do this thing that I can't do. I'm at a place now where, where I don't, I actually, in many situations, I think it's actually a strength. I think that uh, it gives me a different perspective on life. I think that I'm more present in day-to-day moments, which is something I know a lot of people strive to do. Um, and I'm not as negatively impacted by my past. So uh, in my in a factual sense, missing something, yeah, I, you can do something I can't do. But I don't really l- look at it as like a weakness. It's just a different way of perceiving reality. What is imagination for you? It's just dialogue. So either my voice right now is is talking to you. If I'm if these words aren't running, if I'm not saying them out loud, that same voice is running inside my head. When you say it's running through your head, what do you mean by that? It's like an internal monologue. It's that same voice, constant voice, uh, just thinking, just talking to myself almost. You asked Tom about imagination, but what he just described. That doesn't sound like imagination at all. It sounds like just thinking. Yeah, and I think that's where this gets a bit blurry. For most of us, imagination consists of at least images, if not other senses too. We see a story in our minds. But for Tom, it's just words and maybe numbers, but that's it. I am imagining a graphic novel with just words. I've been researching aphantasia for four years, and some, this is something I've learned. It's impossible for people with visual imagery to imagine what it's like not to have it. So if you have a mind's eye, it's impossible to imagine what it's like not to have a mind's eye, because you're always using your mind's eye to do it. And what does Tom think our inner minds are like? Well, how that actually plays out, like how that's experienced, like I couldn't begin to understand how it's actually experienced but i have an idea of like the things you're able to do it's like having a computer screen in your mind that you can like pull up different images and and explore different thoughts (laughs) that just like blows me away that's tom's sister laughing in the background she's not aphantasic are there other people who have similar types of aphantasia that you have it's not just in the visual sense but it's also in the other senses yeah i i don't know I don't know. Because I've never had a sit-down conversation with somebody else who has aphantasia. Would you want to? Yes. Okay, we're going to set this up. Okay. That would be so interesting. Okay, so we're going to do that. We're going to reach out to someone. So I did. 
I found someone. Hi, my name's Amanda Jacobs. Amanda is 25. She lives in London, Ontario, and recently discovered that she's aphantasic. I was reading an article, and I think it was an article about someone who'd had a form of surgery, and he woke up from this surgery and claimed that he could not see in his mind. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, what, a, what is this seeing in your mind thing? This is the same article that Tom read, the one in Discover about Adam Zeman's study. So it just kind of, it sparked me to do some more research. And I kind of discovered aphantasia and slowly pieced together bits of my life. And like, I don't know, everything sort of fell into place. How did you feel when you first discovered this? What was it like for you in this moment realizing like, I can't do this? Confusing. (laughs) So I know it was confusing, but at the same time it was liberating because I've always known that there's something different about the way that I perceive the world. So when I discovered an inability to visualize, I was like, oh, I'm like, that actually explains so many things. It explains my difficulty in school. It explains my anxiety. It explains my emotional detachment to certain things. Amanda, just like Tom, has never met anyone else who is aphantasic. So this is her first time meeting someone just like her. Hi, Amanda. How's it going? That's Tom. Tom. Nice to meet you. So we sat down, and Amanda jumped right in. Going back to like when you first found out that you couldn't visualize, how did you actually react? I, I remember feeling confused. I remember feeling extremely frustrated with like the 500 blogs about how you just you know meditate and you can visualize. Mm. And it just drives me crazy because I was like, no, what are you talking about? Did you try those things? I tried. I tried and tried and tried. I was obsessed. I had a lot of uh, conversations with friends and family and strangers about, you know, to see if there was anyone else. Didn't have much luck there, which, which sort of led to this feeling of maybe isolation, of differentness, of like, this is very strange and mm-hmm. nobody else understands this experience I'm going through. Not only that, people like, oh, you're crazy. Like, what do you, you know, so there, was, really there was a lot of that invalidating. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and I think it, it was easy for me to like say, explain things away. Like, oh, this is the reason why I can't do this or why I haven't, you know, got my homework done. Or, yeah. You know, and, and. That's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> I, I think that's a natural place to go. Yeah. We talked about a lot of different things. And like Tom, Amanda is fully aphantasic. She can't bring back any of the senses from her memories. She has no mind's eye, no mind's ear, no smell, taste, touch, and no emotional recall. Like, I have an emotional detachment to mostly anything that's ever happened, unless it's right after the fact. Um, I just, I can't, like, I remember the facts of what happened. But that emotional response, I don't feel it again. You noticing a pattern here, Paul? You know, after the experience, the emotions are very strong, mm-hmm. almost consuming in a way. Oh, beyond like, consuming. I like, about. I cannot think about anything else. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Same. What's this like for you, meeting someone who's now? <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's um, uh, maybe validating is the right word. Validating is a great word. Because it's like... Yeah, well, this isn't just my experience. You know, you've explained things in a way similar to the way I explain them. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. Uh, to think that it's 2% of the population now 
kind of puts it in a different perspective in my mind as well. Yeah. This affects 2% of the population. So based on current research, about 2%, that's about 1 in 50 people of the world's population, is aphantasic. Whoa. And those are just the people who've come forward. It could be more. But there's still a lot we don't know about aphantasia. There is more and more being discovered. So for instance, Tom not being able to memorize his lines turns out not part of his aphantasia. There's also a spectrum. There are those who are aphantasic who can't conjure images, but can hear things in their mind or smell them or taste them. In fact, the late Oliver Sacks, he was aphantasic. He couldn't conjure images to the mind's eye, but he could with sounds and music. So where does this leave us? Where does it leave the Toms and Amandas of the world? So we all perceive the world in our own unique way. And it's the exact same for those who are aphantasic. It wasn't until a little while later when I, I, I started to recognize the strengths and the advantages, you know, realized that I don't even think that I would, you know, we've had this question, if you could take a pill and visualize, would you take it? No, I wouldn't want to have to go through the motions of learning how to process that. Yeah. I couldn't. I don't think it would I would want to do it. <laughs> like if, okay, if it was temporary, I could try it for a day. Yeah, temporary. I would definitely try it yeah. for a day. Uh, but if it were permanent, but if it was like I it's just... either this or that, no, I'd rather stay the way that it is. Because yeah, I grew up, I've, for me, I'm 25. Yeah. I've, I've had my 25 years. I've never visualized. Yeah. And if I were to suddenly have that, I would be so overwhelmed. Be so disruptive. Tommy Bayer, Amanda Jacobs, Professor Adam Zeman. This doc was reported and produced by Paula Flalo. It was produced and edited by me, AC Rowe. It was originally broadcast in September of 2019. The Aphantasia Network has been around now for over two years. And new research shows aphantasia can be verified by measuring pupil dilation. Also, research has since suggested that the majority of people who have aphantasia are like Tom, where it affects all the senses. There's also some fun studies looking into the benefits of aphantasia. Like, is it a superpower for science? Professor Zeman's research is exploring if people with aphantasia have a particular aptitude for the science and math fields. That's all for us this week. This episode of The Doc Project was produced by Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, and me. Althea Manassen was our digital producer, and Andrew Nguyen, our video producer. Our senior producer was Jennifer Warren. Special thanks this week to our intern, Michaela Van Kooten. I'm Macy Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.